Amen. Thank you, man. You can return to your seats. This morning, uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to uh, go right into God's Word. And uh, so let's, uh, let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes once again, and we're going to look this morning at what God has to say to us as a church. Father, as we come to you just once again this morning, thank you for the time that we've had to um, sing, to worship, to praise you. Um, God, we've been here to, um, at the same time, remember uh, your death on the cross. Um, we're thankful, Lord Jesus, for this incredible gift that you've given to us. Um, you created um, the gift of the local church, and we're thankful uh, for us to be able to, to commit ourselves together, to be a, a church in our community, uh, to have a purpose and a mission, uh, Lord, being filled with your Holy Spirit uh, to do the work that you've called us to do. So God, we thank you for that. Lord, this morning, we thank you for your word, and we just want to pray that you would guide and direct our hearts as we look into it this morning, God. And we just pray your hand to be upon us now. Give us the courage to see the truth of it, and Lord, give us the courage to respond to it at the end of whatever your word has to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. This morning we are in Joshua, and I want you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 6, 7, and 8. Don't worry. We're not going to cover three chapters in detail. But what I want to say to us before we move on to, um, to chapter 9 is there is a glaring question that I think uh, I certainly have had. And it is something that I think we need to deal with and talk about on a particular Sunday morning. We're going to come to that glaring question in just a moment. I want to just remind us of the big story of chapters 6, 7, and 8. There is a success, and then there is the failure, and then there is the success again, and then there is the recommitment of the people of God as they're moving through and into the promised land of what God is doing. And so there is this big story, if you will, that I want to share with us just once again. After the circumcision, after they come across... Uh, the Jordan River, and they are circumcised, and the men are circumcised there. And, and they, but as, the, as the conquest is starting, um, God is doing this amazing work among his people. And so, after they're circumcised, they realize that God is fighting for them. God is for them. God is with them. And they're led by Joshua, and so they attack Jericho. We saw that in chapter 6. And they attack the city of Jericho, and they do things God's way. And, and, and God had said, you know, don't lay everything is to be destroyed, and, and this is for me, and so forth. And so God's people, they follow through with obedient faith, don't they? I mean, God's people, they march around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, what do they do? They march around it seven times, and then they yell at the city walls, and the city walls come flying down, and they go up into the city, and they draw their swords, and they go up into the city, and God brings about a great victory that day. They all come to a place where they listen to the Lord. They all come to a place where they followed the Lord and His instruction, or so they thought, right? We're introduced in chapter 7 to a man by the name of Achan, because in chapter 6, God's people, they have this incredible spiritual high. God is with them. He has told them he is with them. They didn't even have to draw their sword in order to bring down the city walls. God just brought them down because they were willing to obey God. God's the one who was doing the work ahead of them. He was doing this work in them. He was doing this work ahead of them. And so we come to this little city-state in chapter 7 called Ai. It's so small in comparison to Jericho. I mean, Jericho is this imposing force, this imposing place. But Ai is this small little place. And 
Yet, when they decide to go up against AI, what happens? Incredible failure. Incredible failure. They crash and they burn. I mean, they thought that God was with them. But instead, they go up and some 3,000 soldiers go up against this little city-state. And what happens? 36 of them die. I mean, is God, is God left us? Is God now abandoned us? What is going on here? Because what God has done in Jericho is he brought about this incredible victory, and we didn't have to hardly do anything except follow what God said. And here in Ai, they fail miserably. We're introduced to a man by the name of Achan. But you see, Achan was one man in Jericho that did not take God up on his offer, who did not follow through with whatever God told him to do, which was to lay everything to destruction, not to take anything he chose not to listen to the Lord. Instead, he chose to take a little silver, a little gold, a few knickknacks, if you will, and put them in his pocket, and then he hid them in his tent where his family was, and then he lied about it. And as a result, it, the nation paid the price. At the same time that Achan is doing this, the, the people of, uh, uh, of God are going up against Ai. At the same time that Achan knows that he has sinned against God, that he's chosen to do something outside of God's will. It's the same time that there are thousands of holy soldiers of God going up against Ai. And they have followed God. They have done what God wanted them to do, and yet they're going to fail miserably. And on that day, God was angry, not just with Achan. God was angry with the nation. And therefore, that day, they failed. In chapter 7, they fail miserably. And then God exposes to Joshua, God exposes the sin of Achan to the people, to the nation. And they dealt with it. And when they dealt with it, we saw a week ago in chapter 8 that, that there is this incredible victory again. So we have victory and then we have failure in 7. And then in chapter 8, we have incredible success again as God's people take Ai. And then they, they come together and they they pray together and they read God's word together and they commit themselves to the Lord once again. Which leaves us with this glaring question. How could God, listen, how could God punish an entire nation over one man's sin? How could God punish an entire group of individuals, of people who followed God over one man's sin? When my grandfather fought in World War II, he used to tell me this story. I remember sitting with him in the living room in his latter years, and he would tell me a story from time to time about World War II and about what life was like, and he fought in the South Pacific. He was in the Army. He was just an infantryman. He wasn't an officer. He, didn't, he wasn't a hero in the sense of the, of the term. Didn't get the Congressional Medal of Honor or anything of that nature. He was just a foot soldier. And he'll tell me the story, and he did tell me the story of a friend of his and the two of them going up the beach in the Philippines or wherever it was and fighting the enemy they were fighting against. And as they were going up the beach, his friend and he and his friend were marching up the beach, coming up the beach, and his friend gets shot, boom, right next to him and drops and dies. On the surface of that story, you think about that death and you think about the fact that that is an incredibly noble death. I mean, he fought for our country. That man, who I don't even know his name, fought for our nation. He fought for our country, fought for our freedoms. It was a noble death. Fast forward now to the story of what we have and what we have seen in chapters 6, 7, and 8, in particular in chapter 7. Here, not realizing what Achan has done, 3,000 men put their life on the line for God. 
to fight AI, to go up against AI, and 36 men die. Why? Because of the sin of Achan. And yet they have no idea. And here is a story that seems as though it is so unjust. It's so unjust that why would God allow these 36 men to die on behalf of one man who chose to put a little gold and silver in his pocket? What led the entire nation being guilty of sin by God. That's how it's described in the Old Testament. It seems so strange. There's this perplexing question. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 18, I've put it on the screens there for you. We can look at the verse here. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and you make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. God had clearly stated in chapter 6, verse 18, when Joshua threw Joshua to the people, when they went up against Jericho, this is what they were supposed to do. This is how they were supposed to, to, to carry themselves. The, what the, the, the belongings, the things that were in Jericho belonged to the Lord. He brought about the victory, the items that were there, as much as they wanted to take it. Remember, these are people that have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They belong to the Lord. And they were to take that and they were to leave it and they were to devote everything to destruction. And if they didn't, if they chose not to do that, look at the last part of that verse. You make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and you bring trouble upon it. Achan was there that day. He heard that statement. All of the soldiers that were there that day, the entire nation that day, heard what Achan heard what the Lord had said through Joshua to the people. And yet, how could God punish an entire nation over one man's sin? Well, I think the answer to all of this, and this is an important thing we need to wrestle with and think through this morning and understand as it pertains to us here in the New Testament days, right? Is that this understanding of covenant community and it's important to understand this because the same way the Lord looked and treated Israel is the same way that God looks and he works among us as the local church today. And so I want us to understand what God is doing here in the Old Testament because it, it plays into, it ties into who we are and what God's doing among us. Israel is and was a covenant community. They were not just a, gr a group of individuals. They were not just a group of, of collected people. They were a nation. They were a people a people of God. They were a people that were set aside, set apart to be holy. They were established by God. They didn't come up with the idea that they were going to be the people of God. God just declared them the people of God. And then he covenanted with them. He committed himself. He, he committed himself to them. They committed themselves to him. And this was God's plan. God's plan was to display his glory, not just through a bunch of individuals here and there, but collectively through a nation, a people, a family, a corporate body. And we see this in creation, beginning in creation that flows into the people of God that we see in Genesis chapter 12, but even in creation. God walks among his people in the days, in that days he walks, I'm sorry, with Adam, and Adam creates Eve. We see it then flowing into this idea of community, uh, even with the flood. We see Noah and his family are saved. We see it in Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to multiply your descendants. What God is doing there is he's establishing this covenant with a nation through a family. We see it in the exodus of God's people coming out of Egypt as a family. Joseph himself, God raises up and he saves the people of God through by way of Joseph. 
God saves this nation. God saves this people. He's going to make this people. They are one corporate identity with, with a corporate identity, one corporate entity. In the Old Testament, we see that God decided the terms of the covenant. It wasn't up to them to decide how they were going to follow God. It was up to God how he wanted to be followed, right? We see this. And so in the Old Testament, God does all of this work. Uh, he gave them laws, right? He gave them ceremonies. He gave them festivals. They worked and they lived out all of that, not just as individuals, but as a whole people. God's doing this work among them. The sign of that covenant was circumcision, which is why we came to that weird kind of practice, if you will, in chapter 6 among God's, God's people. The men were circumcised there on the banks of the Jordan River. It was the sign of the covenant. They had a, uh, a, a, a meal, a, a Passover meal that they came to and that they, they participated in, a Passover meal. All of that is important. Because when God looks at Israel, he doesn't look at a group of individuals. He looks at a whole people. He looks at a nation. They were special. They are holy. They are part of a covenant with him. When one member acted within or outside of that covenant community, it affected the entire nation. They weren't just a collection of group of individuals. They were a nation of people. So when one person did this, engaged in this, it affected the entire nation, which leads us back to Joshua 6 and seven and eight. If you remember back in Joshua chapter seven, look at it on the screens there above my head. Chapter seven, verse one. Is there in chapter seven, verse one, what does the Bible say? But the people of Israel, what, it, what does it say? It doesn't say Achan broke faith. It says the people of Israel broke faith. But we're talking about one man. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Not Achan, but the people of Israel. And there is something that, that is a glaring question. Why would God be burning in his anger towards God's people over one man's sin? If you're like me, that's a question that I wrote down in my Bible as I'm trying to think about this. But then think in terms of what else he says and what we came to just a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. It says, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? This is after the defeat of Ai. Why have you fallen on your face? Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned, not Achan has sinned, Israel has sinned. And they have transgressed my covenant and I have commanded them they have taken some of the devoted things. They have taken some of the devoted things. There is a perspective that we see here that is a key here to understand how God is viewing the nation as a whole, not as a group of individuals, but as a whole. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Look at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. That was the problem. It wasn't just Achan, the problem was the nation as a whole, and yet the vast majority, the very vast majority of the nation had no idea this was even going on. It seems like God is unjust. This is just God's plan. So listen, I think what's important for us to understand in this story, in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, that who you are and how you live privately has an effect publicly and corporately on other believers around you. Let me say that again. Whoever, who you are and how you live privately will have an effect 
publicly and corporately with the people around you. You see this in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when God set aside his people, he set them aside as holy, a special people. They were a people that would make mistakes. And when they made mistakes, when they sinned, they had to confess that sin and repent of that sin. But unconfessed sin and unrepentant sin led to problems and judgment by God. It was not an individual thing. It was a corporate thing. And we see the effect of Achan upon the people of God. They were the family of God. And in light of the fact that Achan, who takes gold and silver, puts it in his bag, hides it under his, his tent with his family there, and then he lies about it, that's going to have an effect on 36 men who are going to lose their lives at, at Ai. I mean, they're going to drop dead on the battlefield coming up against Ai, all because of one man's sin, which they knew nothing about. Well, that's Israel. But I want to understand, help us to understand that the same thing is true today in some respects to the local church. And I want us to understand this this morning because we are a covenant community in how we think about ourselves. I mean, the first covenant came about by way of Abram and God, right? The nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, we see that it is initiated by what happens at the cross, when Jesus, in that text we just read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that text, when Jesus takes that cup and he passes it around to his disciples, it says, this is the covenant of my blood, right? In other words, there is something spiritually significant that is happening there because of the work that he's going to do just a few hours from that moment. And what he does on the cross and when he rises from the dead, that is going to define who we are. And we are called the people of God. Listen, what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, I have it on the screens above my head there. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10 says, but you are a what? A chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. And yet what you notice in the Old Testament is the same language there in 1 Peter 2 is what we see described about God's people in the Old Testament. Holy priesthood, I mean, a, a holy nation set aside for God's perfect purposes. We are God's people. But it's not just that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is at what? New creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. So there are these defining marks of what our local church and what a local church is supposed to be of you as an individual, right? We are a group of individuals that are the people of God. We are a holy uh, nation. We are a, a, a special nation or special people of God. We have been changed by way of having a new identity. We have fellowship with one another. That Greek word koinonia that we see in the New Testament, it means fellowship. We have a fellowship, not just because we get together and enjoy a meal. We have fellowship around the fact that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says and describes these, these kind of metaphors, if you will, of, of, the, of, of God's church. We are the body of Christ. We are called to live holy lives. What other metaphors do you see? The people of God. We are the family of God. You are a household of God. All of these metaphors, listen church, that we see in the New Testament describe and define for you and me how it is we think about ourselves and treat one another in light of the work that Jesus Christ has already done. These are the metaphors that the Bible puts out there and helps us understand. 
It's very important for us to see it. And so the sign of the covenant isn't circumcision. The sign of the covenant in our, through, through Christ is what? It's New Testament believer's baptism. That when I give my life to Jesus Christ, what does Jesus say? I become a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus, and then I'm baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Believer's baptism. Once I've given my life to Christ, then I follow through with believer's baptism, and I tell all the world who sees me and witnesses me that I have given my life to Jesus Christ, the work that Jesus Christ has already done from the, on the cross and from the grave has already been applied to my life. I just want you to know about it. That's the mark of the New Testament believer. What about a covenant meal? We just did it. We come together and we take of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis to remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done. That's not the body and the blood of Jesus. That's a bunch of juice. Maybe Welch's. I'm not sure. You know what I mean? That's not the body and the blood of Jesus. But what it is is a symbol of, of the body and the blood of Jesus that we take to remind ourselves of what of what kind of a community we, all, we actually belong to, and it belongs to Jesus Christ. We carry that mark with us, right? So we have this sign of the covenant, we have this covenant meal that we bring to, which brings us to why we should all become, if we're not already, church members of a local church. It's that covenant that with Christ, it's also a covenant with each other. Uh, you know, in our membership class, we had a full house last week. It was awesome. We had a great, great time and conversation and discussion, lots of discussions after the fact. But one of the time, things that we talk about in the membership class is this, that when it comes to church membership, Jesus just expects church membership. The New Testament just assumes it. Right? In the, in the, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself doesn't show up. God isn't going to show up here. If you're looking for Jesus to stand on the stage and look at you with a smile on his face, he's not going to do it. He's come, he's gone, he's coming again. But you know what Jesus' display case is to the community around us? The display case is to the, to the county around us, to the world around us? It's you. You, us, is the, are the display case of Jesus Christ to a world that is watching, to a world that's interacting. If somebody wants to know what Jesus Christ is like, then they ought to get to know you that's been, by, been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're becoming more like Jesus Christ every day. They interact with the word of God that you're going to bring to them because it's there that you, they get the truth of who Jesus is, Right? So we understand that Jesus just expects it. The New Testament just assumes it. When the Apostle Paul is writing, he's not writing to just random believers. He's writing to who? Local churches. And all church membership is, is the line that draws itself around the covenant community of God's people in that particular community, town. And so we understand that this is how God defines it. This is how God sets it up. This is how God helps us understand these things. And so what are the expectations? Listen, within the covenant community of God, listen, what are those expectations? Well, it's just simply to come to church on a regular basis. Hebrews chapter 10, 24, 25, we have that. Pop that up there. Listen to this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. If you struggled with getting out of, out of the habit of coming to church, it's okay. They did too. But it's important to just think in terms of, okay, well, God says to do this. Let's just get back and let's get back in line with what God wants. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know what we do when we come together on a Sunday morning? We speak truth into each other's lives. 
We encourage each other. Some of you that came into this room this morning are really beaten up. You're really beaten up. You're beaten up individually in your life. You're struggling with something you just can't quite kick. And so you come in here defeated. You come in here discouraged. You come in here beaten up with something in your life. Maybe there's conflict in your marriage, and yet you're both Christians, and yet there's conflict in your marriage, and you can't figure out how to fix it. So when we come together, what do we do? We're encouraging each other. You're sitting next to people who are following Jesus Christ, and you need that encouragement. You need people speaking truth into your life to both encourage you and to speak the truth to correct you in your life in a loving way. That's one of the purposes of a local church when we come together, every local church, when they come together. This is the purpose for why we do come together. We're called to love each other. John chapter 13, verse 14, when we come together, we love each other. We seek to seek peace and unity. We bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another, not just for health needs. We pray for the spiritual needs of one another to grow in the faith, to work through things in, in each other's lives. We care for one another. We contend for the gospel together. We work side by side to encourage each other. When you see someone in the community or you see someone that you work with who's also a part of our church, you just walk up to them and say, hey, I'm praying for you today. Have you had a chance to influence someone for Jesus today? Or when they have done that and you've seen it, you just walk over and you encourage them and you say, I'm praying for you this way today, that you continue to contend for the faith. Let's do it. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. I'll see you Sunday. We contend for each other. We, we have each other's back, spiritually speaking. We bear one another's burdens. And by the way, we stay away from people who are condescending. We stay away from people who are going to lead you away from the faith. You stay away from people who are extremely prideful of themselves and think really highly of themselves, either spiritually, intellectually, and whatsoever. You stay away from that, and you follow people, and you come around people who are humble. You come around people who are willing to follow the truth of God's word in a humble way and who are pursuing righteousness and holiness in your life. Listen, who you are and how you live privately will have an effect publicly and corporately upon the people around you. You don't believe me? There's an example in the New Testament. It's a harsh example. But it comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to see this because this is a church. This is just another local church, the church in Corinth. And the believers that were there, a part of that church, they were a triumphant but also a troubled church. They were triumphant in the sense that Paul had planted them. He had spent 18 months there pouring into them. He had won many to Christ, and they were growing in their faith, and he had taught them how to be a local church, and then he left. And the Spirit of God was working among them, and it was continuing to be blessed and growing and so forth. But they also had troubles, problems. We highlighted one with the Lord's Supper. But Paul hears about the church in Corinth, and people are telling him, he thinks about this church fondly, he prays for them from a distance as he's continuing to go on and on and on. But then he hears about something that he can't believe has happened in the church. And there's this sexual immorality that's happening in the church, and he's upset about that, but he's upset more so that the people of God in that church aren't doing anything about it. So he writes to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, listen to these words. They're pretty harsh, but he's writing in terms of just trying to write to this particular church. And it says this, it's actually reported that there is sexually, sexual immorality among you. It's a kind that is not tolerated among pagans. And here's the problem. For a man has his father's wife. 
Now, here's the thing. That's what's going on. A man in the church is having an affair with his dad's wife. You explain that. Here is the reality, though, in the church, whenever a letter like this came to the city of Corinth and to the God's people in Corinth, I can imagine that on a Sunday morning, everybody gathered together on the Sabbath day. They all got into a room together, and they wanted to hear the words of Paul. Hey, Paul's written us a letter. And can you even imagine? There they are sitting back there as this is read. But this is what he says. He says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. He's not talking to the man. He's not talking to the family. He's talking to who? You, plural. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Well, how can you remove somebody who's just not committed themselves to a group of people, right? So there's this church discipline issue, then we flesh it out and how you think through that and how you work through that. But we see that example that is there. And on and on he goes, and he says this, and here's the reason why he makes that statement. In verse 6 of that chapter, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You ladies know what leaven is and how it influences the entire dough, right? And this is the point, that unrepentant, unconfessed, rampant sin in someone's life is going to have an effect on someone around you, another believer around you, when it goes unchecked, when it's not being held accountable in a loving, loving way, but someone being reached with that. And that's his point. That's going to have an effect on a particular church. And so we see example after example in the New Testament of this that helps us understand that who we are privately has an effect on us, on people publicly and corporately, the people around us, this covenant community, the local church around us. Most of us in the room, I would imagine, have tracked what's happened at a little school in Kentucky, Asbury University. About 11 days ago, or more now, it's longer it was a normal chapel service at that little university. They have chapel Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. My sons are at Liberty University. They have chapel, you know, throughout the week. The whole student body had to come, and so it all, all the student body has to come, and so they're all there. And a man preaches a sermon, and it's, it's nothing like dynamic or emotionally driven, the sermon. It didn't really have like this manipulative feature to it. It gets done. The small group of students sat around afterwards, and you know what happened? Um, This young man stands up, a student, college student, and you know all he does is this. He begins to confess his sin to the students that are there. And that's how what started in Kentucky has continued there. Revival and Sorts has begun there in Asbury. Thousands of people have come to that little university from all over the world, dropped what they were doing, spending thousands of dollars to buy plane tickets, to fly to Lexington, Kentucky, and rent a car and drive down to this little campus just to see what God is doing. What I want to say to us this morning is this. Revival never just happens. It's not an emotional thing. And I have friends that have gone to Asbury in the last week and a half just to witness it, pastor friends of mine. And what they will tell me is this, not everything they see there is accurate and everything, but they know that God is doing something there. 
And that is spread to other college campuses and churches and so forth alike. But every one that I've spoken to or have talked to or have read about have said these things. That what's happening there needs to happen in all of our churches. Lots of humility, lots of repentance, lots of pursuit of holiness, faithful preaching of God's word, and persistent prayer. You know, revival, the effects of revival are people being saved, people's marriages being restored, but it all begins when we confess sin to one another. We confess that sin to God, and we deal with it, right? That secret stuff, we get rid of it. We clean the wound, and then the Lord begins to heal. The Lord begins to work, and he begins to move. So here, let me say these a couple, last couple things to us this morning, then we're going to pray together. What you believe, what you do, what you say, it reflects on Jesus, and it also reflects on those of us who have joined our congregation even as a covenant community. I would say this, what we value as a church matters. And we ought to value our church above ourselves by way of pursuing holy lives, pursuing righteous living so that we would preserve that living example of Jesus Christ to the people around us. That means our relationships ought to be right in the eyes of God. That, that means our living, the decisions that we make, the words that we say should be wise, the attitudes by which we adopt and embrace in our life should be right in the eyes of God. We should get rid of things like gossip. We should get rid of things like that, and we should pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, sin that goes undealt with is not just about you. It has an impact on all of us and the people around us. It has an impact on your marriage. It has an impact on your family. It has an impact on your friends if you're not married. It has an impact on the people who love you the most. Because your sin, listen, is far greater than you. Satan is very good at convincing you and me that Whatever we do in the private, nobody will know about. But God loves you and I too much to let that go unchecked. So he exposes and he brings what is in the darkness into the light because he loves you too much and he loves me too much. And so we ought to remember that. Before we move on to chapter 9 in Joshua, how does God look at us? How does God think about us? Well, he thinks about us in terms of of his people, and who we are impacts the people around us. So what we think about impacts the people around us. So deal with the issues of sin in your life. Deal with the things that are plaguing you in your life, because if left un- alone, if left unchecked, will be a raging fire that will destroy you and it will harm others. But this is the beauty of the cross. Church, this is the beauty of the cross. Is the beauty of the cross is this, and when you come to Jesus Christ and you give your life to Christ, and you turn away, and you just simply believe in him, then you repent of your sins and you start to turn towards him. He gives you more and more faith. He gives you the ability to follow him. And then he lays on you all of these commandments, and they're not commandments, these things that he wants you to do, these things that he's called you to do. But then he gives you the grace and the mercy and the spiritual power and his presence to be able to accomplish those things. 
And the beauty of this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Put that verse up. Here's the beauty of this verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's nothing that you're struggling with right now or that you're being tempted with that God hasn't given you spiritual power to walk away from with. You need God's people and you need God's help. But the beauty of the Holy Spirit of God that now lives and resides inside of you if you are truly a believer in Jesus is that he gives you the ability to walk away from that temptation and to have victory over it because Satan has no victory over your life anymore. He doesn't. The Lord has claimed your heart. He has put his stake upon your life. Believe that. Come clean about anything that you're dealing with, that you're struggling with, and God will heal you, and God will work in you, and he'll work through you. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to have a time of prayer this morning. As we did a week ago, we're going to do something similar this morning. You know, earlier in the service, we didn't have kind of a corporate time of prayer, but we're going to pray this morning. And I just want you to stay seated with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one looking around. And... But I want to read from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. I read this a week ago. I want us to, this to be our prayer this morning. This is going to lead into our time of response. You know, after all that Paul says to the church in Rome in the 11 chapters, he flows into chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. What is your sacrifice to God? What's God want from you? Like, if you've ever asked that question, what does God want from me? God, what do you want from me? Well, he answers it for us in these two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to spend just a moment or two this morning just thanking the Lord for who he is. So right there in your seats, y'all just start praying. You want to pray in groups, you can pray in groups. Just start thanking the Lord for who he is and for what he's done in your life. I want you to think about how he has worked in you, but I want you to think about who he is and how he's described himself in the Bible and just start praising him for those things. Praise him for his nature. Go ahead and start praying. You can pray out loud. You can pray silently to yourself. Just start praying. If he has saved you, thank him for his salvation. If he's delivered you from some areas of strongholds in your life, thank him for that. Talk to him. He's listening to you. 
Thank him for his word. He hasn't left you in the darkness. Try to figure out this life on your own. Thank him for where he has you in your life. You may not have gotten what you've wanted in the last year or two years or five years. Maybe you prayed about things and they haven't come. Thank him for his presence in your life. Maybe there's something and there's a reason why he hasn't given it to you. It's for your good. He loves you. He's for you. He hasn't abandoned you. What is it that you're struggling with right now? Maybe you've been tempted and you just keep falling to temptation. You personally, maybe it's worry. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Jealousy. Maybe you've grown self-reliant. prideful. Take some time and confess that to him. Repent of that sin. Leave it here. Deal with it. Come clean about it. He already knows these things in your life. He's just waiting for you to talk to him about him. Later in that chapter, I read these words a week ago. I'm going to read them again this morning, but Paul says this about us. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Stay in an attitude of prayer and uh, just listen to these words. And I want you to pray these words and pray these these verses on behalf of our church, on behalf of yourself and your part in these. But listen to these words. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful or lazy in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Look for it. Find ways to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Not everybody's going to be nice to you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty or arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil. 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Talk to the Lord about these things, on behalf of yourself and our church. Pray for the needs of our congregation. You know that we're searching for staff. Pray for them. Pray for those men that God would call those men here. Pray for the ministries, our student ministry, our children's ministry. Pray for our adults. Pray that God would make us a strong and healthy church spiritually healthy church rooted in his word passionate about his mission the gospel filled with the holy spirit his holy spirit we've said this for some time just ask the lord to show us what he's doing right now in us and what he wants to do moving forward in us and through us. Father, thank you this morning for the time to pray, time to talk to you. And Lord, as we come to you this morning, as we stand and sing and respond to you, we just pray that, Lord, your hand would be upon us during this time and that God... Uh, you would guide us and direct us to the decisions that you want us to make in light of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name.